Right. Calvin Coolidge was the 30th president of the United States. And shortly after Calvin Coolidge took office, he was staying in a hotel and he awoke one evening in the middle of the night and he saw a young man going through his things. He had broken into the president's room and was rifling through his his clothing and and looking for things that he could steal from the president. And and so Coolidge said, excuse me, young man, what are you doing? And he said, if, if you wouldn't mind, please don't take my watch chain because it's engraved and, and it, it means quite a lot to me. And he said, but, but can I ask why you feel that this is necessary? And the young man stopped and pretty surprised and shocked, looked back at Calvin Coolidge and said, well, I, I'm, a, I'm a college student. I, I don't have money to pay for my tuition. I don't have money to pay for a roof over my head. I don't have money to put food on the table. And so President Coolidge, who at this time had talked the young man into giving him his wallet back, pulled his own wallet out and pulled $30, which at the time was much more than it is today, and handed it to the young man and said, here. And he said, also, why don't you leave my room this way so the Secret Service doesn't take you into custody on the way out? The only word for that is mercy, right? Mercy has been defined as not getting what we deserve, And when we consider Israel's behavior that we looked at last week in 1 Samuel chapter 8, where they came to the the Lord, where they came to Samuel, and they said, Samuel, we want a king like all of the nations around us. And Samuel warned them and said, you don't understand what you're doing. You don't understand the type of king that you're going to end up with. And they still said, no, we want a king. And God said, Samuel, give them a king, for they're not rejecting you, they've rejected me. When we consider how heinous their stubbornness was and their sinfulness and their rejection of God, we can only conclude that the only thing that's going to save them from utter and complete destruction is God's mercy. Hopefully we're thankful for God's mercy as well. Without it, none of us would be sitting in this room today. We can be thankful for God's mercy that when we rebel, when we by our actions reject his lordship over us, he doesn't just wash his hands of us, wipe us off the face of the earth, and start over with somebody who hopefully will obey him a little bit more. God's mercy is such an important part of our lives. As we're headed towards a time of thanksgiving next week, it's a perfect passage really before us this morning to set the table for us. In in our text, we're going to find out more about God's mercy and his provision for us in spite of our sometimes stubborn and always sinful rejection of him. Chapter 8, as we've already said, ends somewhat ominously. After this warning, in verse 21, it says, When Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord in 8.22. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. You know, we kind of expect a reaction at this point with with the chapter ending again so ominously here with the people saying, no, forget the warnings, forget God as our king, we want an earthly king. We expect a, a reaction like we would have, and our reaction would be fine. Suit yourself, have it your way, go ahead, Israel. You see how well this is gonna work for you. Go find your king, go for it. See, if it was left to us, because of our own fallenness, we would have more of a vindictive approach to Israel at this point. We would step back, wash our hands of them, and say, fine, you're on your own, Israel. You don't want God's leadership? Then, then suit yourself. See how well that works out for you. Well, let's see how God actually did respond to his people. In chapter 9, it opens with the introduction of a man named Kish. There was a man of Benjamin, which is a tribe in Israel, whose name was Kish. 
But the focus isn't on Kish. The focus is on the son of Kish. In verse 2, he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And so we're introduced to this guy named Saul. And then in verses 3 through 14, we all of a sudden shift gears into this account, this story of missing donkeys. And so some of us, because we know the rest of the story, we're, we're tracking along just fine. But imagine approaching this text for the first time. Israel in chapter 8 has rejected God's lordship over them. They've rejected God as being king and demanded a king for themselves. And then chapter 8 opens and it looks good, or chapter 9 opens and it looks good initially that, okay, there's this man from Benjamin. His name is Kish. He's got a son who's Saul who's very kingly in appearance. Here comes the coronation and then there's missing donkeys. But with this account of missing donkeys, Saul takes one of his young men with him, his servants, and they go for three days, and they're looking for his father's donkeys, and they can't find them anywhere. And we don't know exactly where they went because the names in the geographical regions have changed over time, but they were gone for three days to the point where finally at the end of three days, Saul looks at his, his traveling companion, and he says, look, we got to go back home. So th- there are a set of donkeys anywhere that are worth this much trouble. And in fact, if we don't go home now, my, my father's going to worry about us. He's going to have forgotten about the donkeys himself. He's now going to be concerned about us and getting his son back. Well, the servant says, hey, you know what? There's, there's one more thing that we can try. We're actually nearby a certain city. So why, were, why did the donkeys go missing? Because God wanted Saul to encounter Samuel when and where he would encounter him. And the search for the donkeys led Samuel exactly where he needed to be. So the servant says, there's a, a seer, there's a prophet in a town nearby. Maybe he can help us and tell us where the donkeys have gone. And Saul says, well, we have nothing to give him. And the servant reaches down into his pocket and says, well, I have some silver with me. We can offer this to him and perhaps he'll let us know what's happened to the donkeys. So sure enough, they go in in verse 14. They encounter the seer, the prophet, who ends up being Samuel, Right? Pick up in verse 15. Verses 15 through 17 are are key to our understanding of chapter 9 and chapter 10. It says this in verse 15 of 1 Samuel Samuel chapter 9. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, this is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Why are these verses the key to understanding chapters 9 and 10? Well, two things jump off the page at us. First, even though Israel rejected God, God still responded to Israel by selecting their king. He still responds by giving them their king. If it had been up to the people, we would have had Israel's got talent going on. Okay, who's the next king? What can you do? How many plates can you spin at the same time? Can you sing? How do you wield a sword? How do you do in battle? I mean, we would have had this this litany of, of requirements going on. But as it is, instead, the text is very clear, especially even more so in the Hebrew, that it's God who chooses Saul. In the Hebrew, in chapter 9, verse 15, The word Lord there, it says, now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel. The word Lord is at the beginning of that sentence. Well, what the the Hebrew writers would do to emphasize a point is that they would use word order to do that. And so when we find the, the word Lord, Yahweh, at the beginning of verse 15 of chapter 9, 
the writer is emphasizing the fact that it's God who's behind the selection and the anointing of Saul. And so even though Israel rejects God of being king, God still chooses Israel's king. Saul gets a bad rap, and and for a good reason. Again, if we know the rest of the story, we understand that Saul ends up not exactly being the the model king, and he's eventually rejected, and and that's why David is is raised up in his place. But we have to remember at the outset, Saul was God's man, God's choice. And so later when we see David in the cave go up and cut off a corner of Saul's robe, and then we see the immense guilt wash over him, it's for this very reason, because he understood and he knew that God had installed Saul in the position that he was. And so the first reason, verses 15 through 17 are key, is we see that even though Israel rejected God, God still responded and gave them their king. But the second reason is, is because we find out that God's not vindictive towards his people, he's merciful towards his people. God acts on behalf, notice verse 16b, of Israel in response to their cry. He says, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. So even as the people are in one breath rejecting God as their king, in the next breath they're crying out for deliverance from the Philistines and God out of mercy, again, not giving Israel what they deserve. What did they deserve? They deserve to be wiped off the face of the earth. But in his mercy, not giving them what they deserve and in his grace, providing for them a king, he was showing them love and compassion unlike anything that, that we would have ever shown them. Well, why did God demonstrate the mercy? It wasn't because Israel had anything specifically wonderful about them, and it wasn't because he was relenting on his judgment against their sinful rejection of him. Rather, it was him remaining faithful to the covenant that he had made with Israel. Recall back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 through 8. Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8, Moses is saying this. He says, it was not because you, Israel, were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and shows you. In other words, it it wasn't because you were anything special, Israel, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So the Lord had made a covenant, right? And the Lord was going to always remain faithful to the covenant. It's part and parcel of who he is. He can't be unfaithful to the covenant he made because by definition, God is a God who is utterly, completely, 100% perfectly faithful to his word. And so why, even in the spite of Israel's rejection of him as king, does God remain faithful and merciful to them? Because of the covenant that he made with them because of his own reputation, because of his own name. So what does all this lead us to? It leads us to acknowledge with Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. If we are faithless, what? God remains faithful. We can write it down this way for point number one. Rejoice in the mercy of God's providence. Rejoice in the mercy of God's providence. Providence is God's perfect way of ruling his world and sustaining his people. His perfect way of ruling his world and sustaining his people. And so what that means is that our stubborn foolishness, our sinfulness, doesn't thwart, doesn't stop God's providence or remove his mercy from us. And that's a theme that's been seen all up to this point in scripture over and over and over again. Consider the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, right? 
They fall. They go and they, they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And she turns and gives some to her husband who was with her. And so we see even failure of Adam to lead his wife well even there. And, and so both of them, they fall and they incur the judgment of the Lord. But the judgment of the Lord is not doled out to them without mercy, without grace. In fact, even the fact that God removes them from the garden is an act of mercy, an act of grace, because he didn't want them to eat from the tree of life and to live forever in a perpetual state of alienation from him. And so he removes from the, from them from the garden and sets the cherub to guard the way back in. God is a God of mercy. How about Abraham and Sarah? As they're traveling around and they come to Egypt and the Pharaoh takes notice of Sarah, Abraham tells her what? Say you're my sister. Why? Because Abraham was scared for his own life. He didn't want to be, it to be found out that he was married to this fine-looking lady. And for Pharaoh to go, well, that's easy. I'll just kill him and take her to be my wife. But even in that that lack of faith that he has in the Lord, the Lord still remains merciful and faithful to, to Abraham and to Sarah, doesn't he? How about Israel and the Exodus? How many times after the Exodus did, did Moses have to go back before the Lord because God had said, hey, Moses, you remember what I did with Noah? You remember the, the rebuilding, the reclamation project I did with humanity after I wiped out everybody and just kind of started over with Noah? Let's do that with Israel and I'll just start over with you. And over and over again, Moses goes before the Lord and he says, Lord, don't do that. Hold off, be merciful to your people. Why? For the sake of your name. For why should the nations hear that you led your people out of Egypt only to let them perish in the wilderness? And again, God relents and he, he doesn't take out his people. But all that to say, this idea of God's providential mercy over the hands of his people, even his stubborn and rebellious people, is a common theme in Scripture. There should be a humility that accompanies this realization for us. That we don't get what we deserve. That Israel didn't get what they deserved. I mean, think back to the thief from that opening illustration with President Calvin Coolidge. The humility that he must have felt as the president reached into his wallet and pulled out his money and gave it to him. And then not only that, but then told him, hey, if you want to escape and not be caught by the Secret Service, why don't you go out this way? Or there's a, a great scene in the musical Les Mis where Valjean comes and he stays in the home of a priest. And the priest is kind to him and opens up his home. But in the middle of the night, Valjean wakes up and he goes and he, he takes the silver candlesticks and he takes some other items from the priest and he puts them in a pillowcase and he runs out of the, the house. Well, later on that next day, he's apprehended by the, the police and they bring him back to the priest and they say, uh, priest, we feel like this man has wronged you that he's stolen from you. And the priest looks at him and he says, well, why is he in shackles? And they say, well, because he's, he's got your possessions on him. And the priest's response is, remove his shackles, for I, he has not stolen anything from me. I willfully gave these things to him. And the priest says, in fact, Valjean, you forgot the most costly items. He goes back into his home, and he grabs the most valuable things that he has, and he gives them to Valjean, and he says, go. And so that's a, a, another picture of, of mercy and the humility that must have washed over him in that context and in that moment. Are you aware of how much God has shown you mercy? Do you feel that humble gratitude? Do you rejoice in the mercy of God's providence in your life? That even when you are stubborn and sinful and rebellious to him, he doesn't remove his hand of leading to you. Just like he didn't remove his hand from Israel, but in fact involved himself in picking out Saul to be their next king, he continues to have a, a providential and a merciful hand in our lives as well. Our text continues in chapter 9. Samuel gives this prophecy to Saul 
that leaves Saul pretty perplexed and puzzled. In fact, we pick up in verse 21 of chapter 9. Saul answered, am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribes of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Saul's saying, I'm the lowest of the low. I think you've maybe made a mistake. When he describes Benjamin as the least of the tribes of Israel, it's a word in the Hebrew that means insignificant, unimportant. So Saul's looking at Samuel going, man, if, if you're looking to honor somebody, don't, don't pick Benjamin. And if you are going to pick Benjamin, don't pick my clan. My clan's at the bottom of, of everything. Notice even in God's, the, the, the underlying story that's going on here, what God's doing. He's choosing the weakest of the weak to, to end up raising this man up to be king. Well, Saul and his servant are brought into a feast and they're honored with the choice portion of the feast and then he's put up overnight by Samuel and then the next morning they arise and Samuel tells Saul, tell your servant to go on ahead of us. So the servant does and Samuel turns to Saul and he says this. It, it says in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1, Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has the Lord not anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people Israel and the Lord and uh, the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign for you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. This is the private anointing of Saul. Nobody else is around to see this, but it's this word anointing that I want to zoom in on for a second, it's the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is where we get our English word Messiah, which applies to a person named Jesus eventually, doesn't it? But it's traced all the way back to here with Saul where God is anointing Saul. He's saying this one is mine. He's going to be my ruler for my purposes. But notice he's anointed to be prince over the people of Israel. Is there a Hebrew word for the word king? North, south, yes. Is there a different Hebrew word for the word prince? Again, north, south, yes. So was the author intentional? Was Samuel intentional in his instructions to Saul that God was being anointed at, or that Saul was being anointed as prince over Israel and not king? Yes. Why? Because Israel already had a king, didn't they? And so Samuel, in, in private with Saul, is saying, Saul, listen, you need to understand that you're going to be the prince. You're not the top dog. The top dog, that position's already claimed, has been from eternity past, is right now, will be for eternity future. That's God. His authority, even though Israel as a whole has rejected him, he's still ruling, and you're not going to be the king, Saul. You're going to be his vice regent. You're going to be his prince. You're going to be his representative here on earth. Samuel then tells him, so that you know that these things are going to take place, here's some things that are going to happen along the way. And he gives him uh, some, some prophetic points that would eventually come to fruition. But pick up in verse 9. It says, when he, Saul, turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him. And the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, and who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. 
You know, back in chapter 9, verse 21, when Saul questions Samuel, he's right to do so. I mean, from a purely human perspective, it made no sense for Saul to be the king of Israel. Sure, he had the height, and he was an attractive individual, apparently. But outside of that, he was from the least of the tribes of Israel, from the lowest of the clans among that tribe. He didn't have the prestige. He didn't have the lineage. He didn't have the pedigree. He didn't have the honor that was due a king. He was as unlikely a candidate as any, and without divine intervention, he was ill-equipped for the job. But in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 9, we find out, we read this, God, what? Gave him another heart. The word another there in Hebrew, it's the same word that's used when it's spoken of Israel worshiping other gods. Totally different from, in a separate class, unlike, 100% different. And so what's taking place here is God is transforming Saul to equip him for the role before him. There's a saying that goes like this. It says, God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. And that's a bit of what we're seeing here with Saul. You can write it down for point number two this morning this way. Rejoice in the provision of God's providence. Rejoice in the provision, the gracious provision of God's providence. See, God had chosen Saul for a monumental task. Okay, Saul, you're going to be the first king of Israel. Nobody has gone before you in this role. There's no blueprint. There's no model for you to follow after. You can't hide in the the long line of kings and just blend in. No, you're going to be the first guy. Oh, and by the way, there's, there's no honeymoon period. There's, there's this problem of the Philistines that I'm going to need you to go and take care of as their military commander. But we begin to see immediately how God was going to equip him for this role and provide for his leadership needs. Again, has God done this over the course of history as we find it in Scripture? Yeah, how about Moses? Where was Moses when God called him and told him to go free his people from Egypt? He was in Midian. You know where Midian is? Middle of nowhere. It's, it's wilderness, and he's there with Jethro, his father-in-law, and he's a career shepherd at this point. For 40 years, he had been there. That's, as far as Moses was concerned, that was his lot in life. Yeah, he had a great beginning, busted out of the gates, a member of Pharaoh's household, but then he had killed that Egyptian. Pharaoh wasn't too happy with him. He was kind of persona non grata back in Egypt, and so he flees and goes to Midian, and he camps out with his father-in-law, Jethro, and he's taking care of ugly, dumb, stupid, filthy sheep. He's not the top candidate for God to call and say, hey, go to my people and free them from the clutches of the most powerful man in the world at the time. In fact, on top of that, Moses had a speech impediment. God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the call. How about Joshua? Consider the career that Moses had after that. He's a pretty strong leader after God got a hold of him and began to equip him and provide for the leadership needs of the people of Israel, wasn't he? Yeah, Can you imagine being Joshua after Moses dies and stepping in to to walk in his shoes? Talk about a guy who would need God to equip him for that role. Or how about David? We're going to see this in a few weeks, won't we? Samuel goes to Jesse's household and he sees all of Jesse's fine looking young men, his sons there. And he goes, okay, surely, Lord, one of these is the next king of Israel. God says, no, 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 no. David looks at Jesse and he says, do you have any more kids? Jesse says, well, sure, but you don't want that one. He's the runt of the litter. Samuel says, bring him in. And he goes and he fetches David, and 
sure enough, David's nothing impressive to look at, but he's the one that God was going to call and to equip to be one of the greatest kings that Israel would know. How about the 12 disciples that Jesus called? Was there anything specifically spectacular about those men? No. They were regular Joes. They were blue-collar workers. They were tax collectors. They were fishermen. And God took them and through training with Jesus and discipleship from Jesus, equipped them to go out and lead the church eventually. How about Paul, the Apostle Paul? Was he a prime candidate to be a leader in the church? No, he was a persecutor of the church. He was killing Christians. But God went after him and in his providence provided for everything that he would need, equipped him to lead the church. And so the question for us is what has God called us to? And more specifically, is there something that you feel God calling you to do, an area that you feel him calling you to serve in or to engage in that you're holding back from, that you're resisting from, fearing that you're not fully capable, not fully fit for the job? Or maybe you're saying, you know what, I'll do that when I get to this stage of my life. Again, God is not in the business of calling the equipped. He equips the called. I wanted to go into ministry from the time I was from, from as young as I can remember. And this started out because my dad was a youth pastor and I remember that he would go to church and play football with the kids and I thought, that's great, I want to do that and get paid for it. I've since learned a little bit more of what in, is involved in, in ministry. But all that to say, when I, when I was wanting to go into ministry, I felt the call was clear, but I knew I still needed to grow. I knew I still needed to be equipped to be effective in the ministry. I needed to get the right training. I needed to go to seminary. I needed to be volunteering in other ministries. I needed to be discipled by others, older men in the church as well. In fact, one of the reasons, one of the main reasons why I'm here at Compass is because I know that I still need that. And as I look at the men that are on staff here, the other pastors, it was a no-brainer for me to say, yeah, I get to come and learn from those men? Sign me up. And so as, as men, we need to understand that, you know, we may not feel like we're fully equipped for a task at hand, but God in his providence will provide what we need for the task at hand if he's truly calling us to that. The account continues in chapter 10, about midway through in verse 17, with the public anointing of Saul. Samuel gathers everybody again together at Mitzpah, and he says this in chapter 10, verse 18, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought you up, Israel, out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, from the hand of the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Samuel reminds Israel once again of their sin in all this, maybe even giving them one last opportunity to repent from their decision to demand a king. But finally, he says, gather yourselves together. And then in verse 21, we read, he brought the tribe of Benjamin nearby its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Why did God go through this whole ruse? Why did God not just tell Samuel, there he is, stand him up in front of all the people and say, Israel, here's your next king. Well, I think there's a, a couple things at play. Number one, 
I think the people had a, a growing distrust of Samuel. His sons were not leading well. In fact, they had first, before anything else, rejected his son's leadership over them as judges from chapter 8. They were taking bribes. They had perverted justice. They were saying, we're not going to let these guys rule over us. And then I think you see them drifting even further away from their trust of Samuel when in chapter 8, he warns them and tells them, you guys don't know what you're asking for. This is the, what a king is going to do for you. And yet at the same time, they say, no, Samuel, we want a king. And so at this point in time, for, them, for Samuel to stand up and say, here's your king, that may not have gone over very well. But the second side of that is, by going through this whole process, Israel at the time understood that the selection of somebody by lot was a thing from God. This wasn't a game of chance. This wasn't a game of fate. They, they believed that this was the way that God would reveal a choice to them. And so God used that, and he allowed Samuel to go through this whole process, this whole ruse, to finally land on Saul so that Israel would be absolutely clear that Saul was not Samuel's man, but that Saul was God's man for the job. Even down to the point where they can't find him, and they're looking for him, and they inquire again of the Lord, is there someone else? God even further, more clearly says, no, my guy, he's over there. He's hiding in the baggage. It's kind of funny, the scene that follows there, because you think, what kind of king hides in the baggage? And the people, you, you got to use your sanctified imagination, if you will, and, and look over there, and, and this guy? So Samuel jumps in, he's like, look how tall he is. He looks, he looks great, doesn't he? He's going to be able to lead us into battle. And the Israelites, thankfully they weren't the sharpest group, jump on board, they get on the bandwagon, and they start shouting, long live the king! But why go through all of that? Well, what do people say? Hindsight is what? 2020. Well, with God, anytime we reflect on the events of our lives, the events of world history, the events in Scripture, we can see with 2020 clarity His providential hand at work. God's not shy about signing His name to His handiwork. And this is yet another reason for us to rejoice. Finally, this morning, write it down this way we can rejoice in the clarity of God's providence. We can rejoice in the clarity of God's providence. God was delivering a clear message to Israel through this whole process. He was telling the Israelites, though you have rejected me from being king, I'm still king. I'm still king. Daniel understood this in Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 through 21. This is after he's prayed to the Lord for the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and God gave it to him. Daniel responds and says this, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Daniel understood this point. That God's providence is undeniably clear in world events and in daily events in our own lives as well. Consider who was on the throne when Daniel said those things. Nebuchadnezzar, one of the most ruthless rulers the world has ever known, and yet Daniel very clearly said, God, you're the one who put him where you put him. Later on in Daniel chapter 4, we actually hear this from the mouth of Nebuchadnezzar himself after he literally loses his mind, and he's driven from humanity, and he acts like a wild animal, and then eventually he blessed the Most High and praised him, and his reason returns to him, and he says this, his dominion, God's dominion, is an everlasting dominion, an everlasting ruling. 
and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? What that means for us is that this, we don't live in a world of chance, of fate, or of luck. Those things don't exist We live in a world of God's providence. Nothing takes place in this world outside of his providence. Last night we had um, Panda Express, and I didn't even realize it, but I said, we we don't live in a world of fortune cookies or horoscopes. Somebody came up to me afterwards and gave me their fortune to be cute. But we don't. that, That stuff is garbage. It's meaningless. We live in a world that God has ordained from beginning to end. And he was delivering this message to Israel saying, okay, Israel, you don't want me to be king. That's fine. But understand, I still rule. I'm still king. And so we can rejoice in that clarity, knowing that God is the one who's ruling. God is the one who's directing. God is the one who is setting the beginning from the end, who's raising up kings. Yes, raising up presidents and taking out presidents as well. As the passage concludes, Samuel makes a a very important step in in outlining the God-ordained duties and rights of the king in front of Saul and in front of all the people saying, this is what is going to be expected by the Lord of this king. But as we end here, as we drop the landing gear, so to speak, turn back to chapter 9, verses 15 through 17. I said at the beginning, this is the key to understanding these two chapters. But there's something else that these verses do for us. Remember in chapter 8 that Israel rejected God. Now, verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. So you have a people who have rejected God, rebelled against God, sinned against God. And God's response is to send his man, his anointed, to deliver them, to save them from their enemies. Does that narrative sound familiar at all? We can fast forward to the beginning of of the New Testament and we can read of another who God was going to send to save his people. Not from the Philistines, But from what? From their sins. Christ. Jesus Christ. The word Christ is anointed one. It's the the Greek version of this Old Testament word for anointing. So do you you hear the the distant echo of the the gospel cadence even in 1 Samuel chapter 8, 9, and 10? It's pretty pretty amazing, isn't it? Even in, in what God's doing with Israel with raising up Saul, he's foreshadowing eventually what he would ultimately do for all of us through Christ. So we can rejoice in the mercy of his providence. 
Rejoice in the provision of his providence. Rejoice in the clarity of his providence. And we can do that most readily and tangibly as we consider the gospel, his mercy, his provision, and his clarity. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful this morning for this text. We're thankful, Lord, that you didn't wash your hands of Israel and walk away, but that you were merciful to them. Father, we're thankful that you raised up a man, Saul, in this time who was your man, and you equipped him for the role that he would play in Israel's history. Lord, we're thankful that, Lord, you made it so absolutely clear that you were the one behind this, that this is not human ingenuity or or human reason that's, that's landing on this decision, but the decision comes 100% from you. Lord, may we take those realities and understand that you're the same God today that you were then. That's still how you operate with us. May we be thankful for those things. May we rejoice in those realities today. Father, may you be pleased this morning with our continued time together as we break into discussion groups, small groups. Lord, may you use your text, your word to transform our lives to make us look more like Christ for your glory and honor. In his name we pray, amen.